Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University in San Marcos, Texas. I'm Dan Seed from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. We're joined on this episode by Jennifer Dubois, an assistant professor in the Department of English, where she teaches creative writing. Three novels that she has, A Partial History of Lost Causes, Cartwheel, and The Spectators, are all award-winning works of fiction, with The Spectators earning her a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Cosmopolitan, and Salon, among others. Jennifer Dubois, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So Jennifer, easy question to start off. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm originally from Massachusetts, near Boston, and I had sort of a circuitous path a little bit to creative writing. I had majored in political science, and I actually was hired by the CIA after after college, but then went to get an MFA instead. Uh, and then ever since, I've just sort of been around the world of, of writing and, and teaching writing. I lived in California for a bit and then came to Texas for this job, I guess, in 2013. Right off the bat there, something very interesting. You work for the CIA. How do you make that transition from that line of work to getting an MFA in, in creative writing? Well, so I was only hired by the CIA. I did not join. It was just in that year post-college where I was sort of floundering and wondering, you know, what should I do with my life and applying to things that seemed interesting and exciting. And so I applied for the CIA. I applied for the Iowa Writers Workshop. And then um, weirdly, they kind of both came through at the same time. So I had this very stark kind of fork in the road where I realized I would much rather spend the rest of my life writing stories in, in coffee shops than you know, jumping out of airplanes and what have you. So I feel like I made the right decision. <laughs> both interesting lines of work, different, but both interesting. So you mentioned that there's that fork in the road where you decided to go that way, but but the idea of being a professional writer, was that something that you had thought of prior to that that moment? And, and what really kickstarted that for you? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question, this concept of the professional writer. I mean, I, I guess to me, you know, that would, it never would have occurred to me probably growing up that writing was something I could put at the very center of my life. I certainly always enjoyed it. And I took, I did, you know, some creative writing in, in high school and in college. And I was, I was loved it. I think I probably assumed it was a hobby that I would engage in probably lifelong, but no, I, it wasn't until I got into graduate school that I sort of conceived of writing as something that you could at least take some time out of your life and, and put at the very center of it. And then it's just sort of by good fortune that I've been able to continue to do that, you know, through fellowships and now through an academic job, which at least gives me time to write in the summers. But no, I, I never, I certainly never would have dreamed that that writing could be something that you could that you could sort of make a life around, at least. For you, what what are some of the challenges? What are the best parts about being a writer? What do you enjoy best about it? Well, I mean, I really enjoy the feeling of being able to follow your own curiosity and your own, you know, imagination, kind of getting excited about an idea, especially with my novels. I find that I've, I've written them sort of based on questions that I find really vexing that where, where I'm, where I look at something in the world or I look at a situation and I just start to really wonder, you know, like, how did that happen? Or, or what is it like to be that person? Or how does somebody change so profoundly over the course of a, of a lifetime? Or how is it that people look at the same situation and see something, you know, so radically different? When I find myself really getting kind of obsessed about that a question like that, that's usually an indicator that I'm at the beginning of a novel. And that's a really exciting feeling. And 
I, I love that. And I love the sort of just, you know, the, the kind of the, the excitement and sort of flow that you feel, the sort of almost like privacy in your own mind that you feel when you're kind of just just deep embedded in, in a story. It's it's almost more fun when it's when you're quite far from like the threat of publication and you're, you're just kind of able to kind of disappear a little bit into into the flow of creating. So those would be my favorite aspects, I think. And I do want to get into that, what you just talked about, kind of going down the rabbit hole, finding something interesting, because you utilize that in a lot of your books, especially with historical context and even contemporary figures. But you mentioned something there, this idea of, you know, starting it and writing the book and getting into it. Your first novel, A Partial History of Lost Causes, was the winner of the California Book Award for First Fiction and the Northern California Book Award for First Fiction. Certainly uh, amazing accolades for debut work, but walk us through what it was like to write that first book and how has that changed since, if at all? Yeah, so that first book was originally inspired by a New Yorker article I read about Gary Kasparov, the chess champion turned dissident in Soviet and post-Soviet Russia, and I thought, what a fascinating trajectory for somebody you know someone should really write a novel about that guy and then you know there I was at the writer's workshop like well maybe maybe it's me and it's threaded against a storyline of a young woman who is who is facing a diagnosis of Huntington's disease which is a terminal uh, neurological degenerative condition which her father had died of and uh, she's sort of grappling with this question of you know how do you how do you confront a lost cause or how do you proceed in the face of a lost cause which is turns out to be quite similar to the question facing the political dissident who's trying to run this like quixotic campaign against Vladimir Putin and so then their stories kind of inter intertwine writing that novel was I think when I spoke a minute ago about just that sense of like privacy that I enjoy or that that sort of sense of anonymity it's it's very easy when you're writing a first novel to to believe that you're really just writing it for yourself. And in a way, you know, you're the, I always tell my students, you're the person that's going to read the thing more than anybody else in the world will, you know, even if you have some smash hit bestseller, like no one's going to spend more time with that book than you will. So you do kind of have to entertain yourself first, but I think it's in that first novel writing process where you, you can, you can really kind of just, just sort of disappear into that and not, not worry about, you know, I, I didn't know like, about, you know, about Goodreads at that point, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, you don't have to, you don't have to fret as much. And so I think that that's this very liberating feeling. I think that there are, I think some challenges as well as opportunities that come with, with that, that sense of anonymity. And then I think the flip side, once you've been through the publication process and you write another book and you're much more mindful of the fact that like somebody else, other people will read this and oh, they're gonna have opinions about it. And some of them, they won't be great opinions and they'll put it on the internet. You know, I mean, you you can't kind of, you can't kind of jump back into that space of sort of like perfect anonymity. And, and, I, and I think there are drawbacks to that, but there are also advantages of course as well. When I think about writing that first novel, I just think about like sitting in my little apartment in Iowa City and doing chess games like out on my chess board to try to figure out how to like write about them and just feeling very like very inspired, but also kind of very protected in this, in this way that I think subsequently, you know, writing novels becomes a little bit more, a little bit more fraught. What is your writing process like? You know, we we have this image maybe of the the writer, you know, sitting down and, and pounding away. And Ken Burns had his recent documentary on Ernest Hemingway, and Hemingway would write all morning and then stop and kind of spend the afternoon in leisure. What is your day like when you sit down to write? 
<laughs> yes, that's exactly it. I write all morning and then I'm out fishing and like hunting big game. <laughs> well, you know, honestly, it's, it's tough to figure out how to find pockets of time to write during the academic year. That's just always been a reality. So I tend to be someone who gets a lot of writing done in the summers and you know, it may sound kind of grim, but I, but mostly during the school year, I, I kind of set aside like usually one night a week to, to really like sink into my work. So, you know, I know a lot of writers who swear by, you know, a really kind of faithful routine of you got to get, you know, you've got to get in the chair every day. You have to write a certain number of words or for a certain, that just doesn't work for me with my life because I tend to sort of need a little bit more of a stretch at a time to sort of get into the thing. And that's just not super available during the school year. And now I have, now I have a toddler too. So yeah, any, any hopes of a Hemingway-esque schedule, I, I think are, are probably uh, at this point, probably shot. But I think that it's good to know that you, there are different ways to, to write a book. Like I feel like I'm someone who has very little time to write and yet I've written four novels now. So it, you know, it gets, it gets done somehow, whether you're sort of slow and steady and consistent, or you're someone who is a little bit more of a feast and famine type type person like me um there's just just so many different ways to make writing happen and an added element to your novels as we touched on lightly earlier is this idea of bringing in historical circumstances or contemporary figures as you mentioned putin in a partial history of lost causes what kind of research goes into your books to do that and i imagine that can add an extra layer of difficulty and it can be consuming at times yeah, absolutely. Which I think is another another indicator of why it's helpful to be genuinely really nerdily interested in whatever you're tackling, especially if you are tackling something that has a historical dimension. So with the first book, you know, I just was, I was really interested in Russia. I had always been really interested in, in, in Russia. And so that just involved reading a lot of, of books. I didn't actually get to go to Russia to um, do any research until after the book had already sold because I didn't have any money to go to Russia until the book was sold. So I really did it through, you know, just kind of reading every kind of book I, I could about from like the cultural, a cultural history of St. Petersburg to a lot of stuff about Cold War chess machinations to, you know, travel logs. I looked, I guess this was in 2007. So I looked through people's like Flickr photos, their like vacation photos that they would post. So that was a very like ad hoc kind of approach. And I'm sure that there are things in that book that a, a native Russian would probably take some issue with, but I did do a lot of, a lot of research. Um, and then when I got my book advance, I could go to Russia for a, at least a week and a half or so, which was amazing. Cause it was a very cool experience to go to a place that you had studied in such depth. And then, uh, yeah, subsequently, I mean, I, my most recently published book, The Spectators is uh, set in, in New York city and it spans the 1960s to the 1990s, and it deals significantly with the, the gay experience in New York and with the AIDS crisis. And so, so that too was, you know, qu quite a bit of research on the level of the gay experience, gay liberation post Stonewall, the AIDS experience, um, both from like a personal standpoint, as well as sort of a public health standpoint, of course, um, and the band played on being like, you know, sort of seminal text of, of that. And then again, with, with New York City, it, it's, you know, I was lucky in that it's just such a well-documented city that even though, you know, nothing, you know, things there are constantly getting torn down and rebuilt and everything changes and, and is in such flux. But if you really want to know what like a street corner looked like in 1993, like that, there's a picture out there, you know what I mean? So 
so again, it was a, probably mostly a combination of like sort of deep study and deep research and reading. And then, and then also just a lot of like random internet Google searches. When you look at your novels and you talk about this and all this research that goes in, how much of your own experiences do you convey through your books? Yeah, I mean, that's another interesting question. I mean, I think for one thing with like any any theme that arises from a from a book is in some way tethered to the subconscious of the person writing it, you know? So the deep questions that animate me, like for example, my second book, Cartwheel, which follows, uh, it's loosely based on the Amanda Knox case. So it follows this um, young woman on study abroad who's accused of murdering her roommate. And it, uh, it's told through four pe- uh, points of view of people who have you know, different, different views on this, you know, some people who are very convinced of this girl's innocence and some of her guilt, nothing in that book is really autobiographical in any way, but like the fundamental, the fundamental question that, that flummoxes me is indeed this question of how is it that people of goodwill and people of intelligence can look at the exact same person or the exact same situation and just see wildly different things. And that's not a question I have an answer to, but I think baked into the book is a question that's just like at the, you know, at the, heart of my soul in some ways. That's a stupid, <laughs> that's a stupid way of putting that for an author, the heart of my soul, but, but you know what I mean? So I think it's, there's, there's that, those sort of preoccupations are, are there. And then the rest of them have kind of like varying degrees of like bits of biography, but for the most part, it's, it's, I think the biography comes through in those questions. And your books utilize that, that multi-point of view in them, which I think is interesting because often we just get the, the narrator's perspective, how informed or uninformed they are. And that's, that's the perspective that we get, but to write a book where you're bringing in that multiple perspective look at it, what do you think that does in terms of maybe making your books not, not necessarily resonate, but where people can look at them and, and better understand maybe, you know, the human condition, I suppose, the way that people perceive things. Is, is there a reason for you doing that? Yeah, I mean, I think because I am really interested in the the sort of different ways that people look at the world and I think for me you know it's really interesting to try to inhabit the mind of someone who thinks differently than than I do and I I hope that that's something that readers appreciate too I, I don't know that they always do but it, you know with with cartwheel for example you know it was was really for me great fun to try to because I had my own private opinion about whether my character was guilty or innocent it was great fun to then have to make the other case you know like like think through the thought process of the person who thinks differently from me in a, in a million different ways I mean to me that's like energizing and exciting and I and I wanted with it with that book in particular I you know I wanted readers to to come away with their own opinion about what had happened but I wanted them also to have had to seriously consider and entertain an opposing viewpoint you know like even if they they came up with their own conclusion but they'd had to really sit for a while with someone who thought differently and, ha- and had to really kind of tilt their heads and say like okay that's that's why this person thinks the way they do which i i do think is, is fascinating and in the spectators there's kind of a, a, a similar kind of a, a similar strategy at work in which you have this main character who is actually inspired by, by Jerry Springer uh, in a way. He's a progressive politician turned trash TV host. And you see his story narrated through two points of view. One, his lover who becomes sort of increasingly disillusioned with him as time goes on. And then also from the perspective of his young publicist who works for him in the 90s and sort of starts the book like really loathing him, but then comes to a much more nuanced understanding. And so I was hoping in that book that 
you know, that at some point the reader's experience kind of crosses in the middle too, where they, they kind of get to see a before and after, and then also sort of an after and before. And hopefully they, you know, arrive at some understanding of this person that is more nuanced than either the the lover when he's like, you know, fully idealizing and idolizing this guy or the the publicist who doesn't really know him very well or knows him in only this sort of fragmentary sense and has a lot of judgment. So yeah, so I don't know if that answers your, your question. I think that's yeah. about what resonates for me about the, about this strategy. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, I th- what I think is interesting about it now is taking this this approach is in this time that we live in where everybody has an opinion and it's very black or white and there's very little middle ground that it forces people to sit and read and look at things from a different perspective. And I think that that nowadays is, is an important thing, be it in the real world or, or in the case of fiction that challenge people. And do you set out to do that when you write a story like this to, to challenge the reader's conceptions or preconceived notions at all? I mean, I think it's an interesting point you raise. Like, I, like I do think that right now, this idea of sort of imaginative empathy is a little bit like out of out of vogue, which is which is understandable, you know, given the political context that, that we're living in. But I I don't know that it's the best position for an artist to to take. And I, I certainly don't think I set out to to specifically challenge like anybody's worldview, except to the extent that I feel a lot of humility toward my characters. I, I do have a very strong sense in life. And also I, I know that this comes up in my fiction again and again, that, that we just don't have ever anybody's number, you, you know, that we, that we don't actually, that, that human beings are pretty irreducibly complex and that we probably have only a very like surface, superficial understanding of, of most folks. And the, and the people just have histories and stories that you just don't know. And so that is something that comes up again and again in my fiction is and you can do it pretty well through multiple POVs, although you don't have to do it that way. It, it, just in which characters are surprised by other characters, or there's just you know they're just in, they're they're forced to confront the fact that they don't they just don't know everything about the people around them. And I and I would say that that is that's maybe a sort of modest modest kind of claim, but it's it's something that's pretty dear to my to my heart, both um, both ethically and and artistically. So that that is something that I that I probably do pretty consciously kind of write into my books again and again, is that just sense of people being a little bit wrong about each other. And that multiple point of view perspective is interesting, but I would imagine that it's challenging creatively for you to be able to, to formulate this, to come up with these different perspectives. How do you go about doing that? Do you just kind of immerse yourself in it and think, well, what's a different way I could look at this? Walk us through that process because you don't see many books like that. Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I guess... I mean, it's a gift and a curse, I suppose. I don't, I just don't have that much trouble. I mean, maybe it's because I was a philosophy major in some ways, poli sci and philosophy, and then got an MFA, making myself very employable. But I just don't have that much trouble making the counter argument. Do you know what I mean? Like I, you know, whatever the position is, even if it's something that like, to me is the most morally obvious thought in the world, like I just don't have that much trouble coming up with like how you would make the best case for the other side. And so to me, that part of it's not really that hard, frankly. It's then I think the on a craft level, what's always challenging is trying to make your narrators sound different from each other because at the end of the day, there's going to be certain similarities. It's all coming from your your brain. And there are a few kind of little crafty things you you can you can do to to change that to some extent, you know, variations in diction also it's, I always tell my students, you know, it's kind of a cheap trick, but it's helpful to 
give people different um, different sources of knowledge or interest because then they can always be sort of like thinking things through. For example, my art wheel is very attuned to music. And so, you know, he thinks he thinks through that language a lot. And that's just something that is specific to him. And so hopefully it adds a dimension of characterization to his to his point of view, even though there is going to be some fundamental sameness in the language throughout. That's probably somewhat unavoidable. You mentioned a few times now The Spectators, your latest work, which again earned you a fellow from the National Endowment of Arts and was praised, highly praised in the New York Times. The New York Times review of it, one of the quotes that I pulled from it was, good fiction about celebrity culture is tricky to pull off and rare. What a good surprise it is therefore to come upon Jennifer Dubois' The Spectators and read a novel about a TV star that feels just right. When you read something like that, when you hear people talk about your work like that, what goes through your mind when, when you get a review like that? Well, it's always, I mean, for one thing, to get a positive review in the New York Times is, you know, it's it's such a dream. It's basically like, the, that's probably about the best day you can have as, a, as an author. I've had two really good ones and one kind of like more mixed one. And let me tell you, the, the good ones are, are preferable. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and that review, I think, was written by Ken Tucker, who's an author, I, I, I was. like, in Entertainment Weekly as a kid, you know, so it was just also kind of weird and surreal to me to be like, I, I just, I remember reading this guy's TV criticism, and it's, and, and then there's also this, the, it, it's also interesting, too, because sometimes what people like most about your book is not what you like most about the book so I I really like the spectators I think it's you know I think it's quite beautiful I think it's quite funny I think obviously it's a topic that's interesting to me I would not have told you that I felt super confident that it it was like a accurate depiction of a celebrity because like mm -hmm. I don't know you know so it's in so but then it's great to have the t a tv critic seem to find it plausible but it's but it's interesting too because that's certainly not not what I would have regarded as its as its strength per se. <laughs> but yeah, that was a very good day for sure. So how does a book like that or how did that specific book come about? How you talk about going down these rabbit holes where you find this information, you get hooked and you just kind of go down and do that research. How did that one come about? It's always a little bit so far, it's always been a somewhat similar experience of hearing some kind of real life story and thinking, what? And then and then kind of thinking about it and thinking about it and then being like, Okay, this is clearly so, and it's always a little bit of an oblique relationship, sometimes more straightforward than other times. In this case, it was listening to this really interesting podcast, which I'm not going to remember if it was a fresh air or like, I don't know what, but it was about Jerry Springer. And it was about how Jerry Springer had been this beloved city councilman and beloved mayor of Cincinnati in the 70s and was this really like progressive, serious politician with apparently great charisma and people thought like Kennedy-esque you know, potential. And he had this episode where he paid for a prostitute with a check and got, you know, publicly shamed and, you know, but then he kind of pulled through this scandal and like came back and was like resurrected in this way. And then apparently his like early work in journalism was much more straightforwardly like issue oriented and even like the very early iterations of the show were kind of more like Donahue and then just over time because of like the forces of capitalism and viewership and, and and incentives his show became this ludicrous like raucous outlandish thing that we all know and and then kind of went so far that it became like a, almost a parody of itself like there were a lot of shows that were kind of in that genre at that time but his right. show almost the winkiest one of the bunch 
And so again, I just was like, this is fascinating. I had no idea that Jerry Springer started, started out as this like substantive politician who people thought, and, and then he tried to run for Senate in the early 2000s and people thought that was such a, a joke. I remember that and I remember thinking what a joke that was, but then it turned out that he was really trying to like reclaim this past identity rather than just like suddenly forge this new one. All of that, I just thought, oh, I mean, come on, that's just catnip for, you know, for a writer. And so, so that was essentially the, the basic question was like, you know, how does someone transform so profoundly over the course of a lifetime? And then I just thought it would be interesting to kind of tell that story from the perspective of somebody who was kind of had my experience of being like, of knowing this Jerry Springer character, you know, in one way, and then learning with this backstory and having to kind of recalibrate and come up with a more nuanced view. And then also from the experience of somebody who went through the process of like watching this unfold in linear time, because the surprise is we may be to learn about Jerry Springer's political career, probably the people who were his like voters and constituents were very surprised to see his like ultimate TV career. So I have two characters who are kind of stand-ins for those for those experiences in, in some respects. There's a lot that's changed. It's set in New York. The one of the points of view is is his lover and it's a it's a gay lover because I thought that it would be really interesting if I took that like scandal storyline and, and turned it into like a real love affair but then I thought well what would really be a scandalous love affair and then it was like well clearly a same-sex relationship at that time so there's all kinds of reasons that and things get you know transfigured and transmogrified and in no way is it you know an actual meant to be an accounting of this Jerry Springer thing but that was the the inspiration was just thinking oh wow what a wild story and again, we're talking with Jennifer Dubois from the Department of English here at Texas State University. And Jennifer, we have a few minutes left, and I wanted to talk about your students and the work that you do with them, because you mentioned that you know you've had this balance between being a writer and being a professor. So let's talk about your students and the work that they do. What do you like best about teaching, and what do you see students bringing to the table day in and day out? I mean, I love I love teaching and I and especially teaching my graduate students just because this experience of getting to know them over the course of three years, getting to watch them come in, getting to read their admissions folders, and then sometimes often get to serve on their thesis committee or be their thesis advisor. Just the level of sort of um, the depth of that relationship is it's really profound. I mean, not to be cheesy, but it, it is something that I had had an experience just just with teaching undergrads, you know, semester by semester. And that's that's very rewarding as well. But just this, this process of getting to kind of watch somebody develop as an artist over the course of such a long time is, I don't know, I find it, I find it incredibly meaningful. And I just I just love them. And they're they're very interesting. I mean, they're a very interesting and like crazily smart bunch of young people. I think they get like a little smarter every year, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is actually a little, a little intimidating, but yeah, they're, they're interesting. They're all, they're all writing very different things and they're all very good at and open to like understanding how to talk to each other and give each other meaningful feedback across aesthetic interests, you know, or across aesthetic lines. Like I always talk to them about this idea of sort of your literary values, you know, those things, those instincts and preferences that sort of guide your subjective response to literature and also your shaping of your own creative work. But also, you know, that part of the task being in a workshop is to learn how to engage usefully with the work of people who have different literary values. And, and they, they seem to have a very good kind of instinctive capacity for that. 
they're yeah, they're they're delightful. <laughs> so wrapping up here with Jennifer Dubois, Jennifer, it's been a pleasure talking to you. What's next for you? What, what are you working on right now? So uh, right now I'm sort of in the midst of some revisions on a fourth a fourth novel. This is a I don't want to go too much into the into the content of it, but I will say that you know, The Spectators was such a such a long, like structurally complicated book with different timelines and different POVs. And while I was revising that book, which took quite a while, I was fantasizing about writing a book that was just going to have one point of view, be linear, just chronological, be short, and be set in actually in Boston in 2003. So like a, which is where I went to college and when I went to college. So, you know, something that was not going to require like some massive deep dive. So once I finished the revisions for the spectators, it was very easy and fun to kind of write this this draft straight through. It felt it felt just just really kind of exciting to do something that felt so structurally streamlined. Although it's it's a very kind of morally complicated story. So so I'm working right now on on trying to tinker with some of those moral complexities and and try to grapple grapple with some of the challenges of creating like a very very um sinister first person narrator uh and and trying to trying to to figure out how to calibrate voice and dramatization of secondary characters uh in the appropriate way which is a very different challenge from what i've had before because i've always had multiple points of view to bounce off each other and so it it, it turns out that writing one point of view Although, um, although less time consuming also has its, uh, <laughs> it has its challenges, but it's fun to be working on new ones. Always good to challenge those creative muscles, right? In, in different ways. And that's a book that I'm certainly interested in. Can't wait to see when that comes out as I was in college in Boston at that same time. So it, it's always good to get back in the, the scene like that. So Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Big Ideas. We'll be back next month. And until then, stay well and stay informed. Big Ideas TXST is a presentation of Texas State University and the Division of University Advancement. Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke, with technical assistance provided by Manuel Garcia. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz.